Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we use data to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week again in Hong Kong. Hi, Adam. Hi, Kim. So in the second half of the show, we're going to be continuing the series we started a couple weeks ago on the occasion of Valentine's Day. The series is on the economics of love, and we'll be continuing it with a discussion of the economics of therapy. So stick around for that. But first, we're going to be doing something more from the news as usual, and the data point there is 6.4%. That was the annual inflation rate in January 2023, just a month or so ago, and that is down from the nearly double-digit inflation rates that we were seeing a few months earlier, which suggests that the Federal Reserve's choice to raise interest rates has been working, at least on its own terms. And it's managed to do so while keeping unemployment, at least for now, at 3.4%, the lowest it's been since the Korean War in the 1950s. It might be accomplishing, in other words, what's been referred to as a soft landing, a concerted cooling down of the economy while still managing to avoid a recession. This is where inflation is tamed. It is coming down, but not as many people need to lose their jobs. There's still a chance for a soft landing. I mean, I wouldn't take that off the list of possibilities. Some people doubted that that was even possible, but there are some good reasons to think it's actually happening. So, yeah, let's start with the doubters. Adam, Larry Summers, who's come up in our podcast before, he described in June 2022 a soft landing to, to inflation as being, quote, at odds with both economic theory and the empirical evidence. What exactly did Summers mean by that? I mean, in in what ways does this idea of a soft landing contradict what we've previously known about the economy? Yeah, so the theory bit is the idea that there's a thing called, I mean, economists call it the Phillips curve, which is a curve which was first estimated in the for the post-war period and became very popular in the 1960s, which postulates that there's a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. And so this is the theory element. And the idea is that if you want to have inflation coming down, you probably need unemployment to go up considerably. And if it has to go up by a large amount, then you're talking a hard landing. And so faced with inflation of the sort of type that we were dealing with uh, two or three months ago, heading towards 10% and over, Summers' proposition, and he, and he made this very forcefully in a paper he did with the collaborator Alex Domash, was to say, look, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we think we can get inflation down from 10% by a substantial margin without unemployment going up by a large amount. And this is where the empirics came in. So the theory is the Phillips curve. The empirics is the idea, and well, just the finding that since 1955, there has never been a quarter with price inflation above 4%, and we were well above 4%, 
and unemployment below 5%, and this is the situation of the US economy, very tight labor markets, unemployment heading below 4% even. So in Summers' and Domash's summary, since 1955, the entire period since World War II really, there's never been a quarter with price inflation above 4 and unemployment below 5 that was not followed by a recession, a hard landing within two years. Why? Because the Fed has had to act to repress inflation, which is above four. And when you repress inflation above four with that kind of a tight labor market, you end up having to induce a recession. In other words, negative growth, two quarters back to back of negative growth. And, and that is, as it were, the theory and empirics argument. <clears throat> they then went on to say that you know, the two periods where we saw really substantial drops in inflation, which were in 73 and 82, were followed by really quite severe recessions. The three previous periods, 1965, 1984, and 1994, where we saw inflation coming down with relatively less severe increases in unemployment, so soft landings, didn't start with labor markets as tight as the current situation. So it's this combination of extremely tight labor markets and high inflation that led them to postulate that it was improbable that we could see a soft landing. What we've actually seen in the months since then, and particularly over the last two or three months, is wage inflation, which is the crucial link here, tight labor market, wages going up, wages drive prices. What we've actually seen is wage inflation, particularly decelerating very fast in the United States. So it was up. Wage inflation was around 6.5% last year, various periods. Domash and Sommers postulate that it was going to go over 7%, and that was going to drive continuing inflation, and then the Fed would have to act. And instead, what we've seen is wage inflation rapidly falling from 6.5% to, I think, the most, the latest reading is 3.5%. So if that continues then their story begins to crumble and the soft landing scenario becomes more plausible. So potentially we are making some economic history here. I mean, that's yes. really what's at yep. stake. Yep. Yeah. Whether we stick, whether we stay to existing patterns or perhaps we, in the wake of COVID, have experienced a true anomaly. So to turn to the empirics right now about the, about the U.S. economy in more detail, I mean, in what way is is the data telling a contradictory story about the U.S. macro economy? Taking a look at some of this data, and it seems like consumer confidence is down, but then at the same time, consumer spending is still generally pretty strong when it comes to manufacturing data. You know, factory orders are down, for example, but as we've been discussing, at the same time, unemployment is still at, at record lows. So do these kinds of tensions in the data have to be reconciled? Or is it kind of possible to maintain this peculiar kind of equilibrium? Yeah, so this is a, is a great question. And it's been occupying folks in the markets. And they've actually come up with a, an idea, a scenario, a term to describe this, as you, as you said, like maintaining this equilibrium, this weird kind of balance of good and bad news. And that's called the no landing scenario. But as uh, Ethan Wu, the, uh, a great journalist at the FT in the unhedged uh, newsletter there, has pointed out, this isn't really an equilibrium. It's not really an equilibrium, a, a situation that you can maintain. Why not? Because inflation is still ticking along at between 6 and 7%. Now, that's way, way down on where we were last year, like where we thought we were heading towards 10%. And wage inflation is off its peak and coming down. But Regular inflation is still stubbornly stuck around 6 to 7%, and the core bit is actually not showing the tendency to deflate as quickly as we'd expect. That's the bit which is 
the element of inflation which is least susceptible to shocks like energy. And so this is what the Fed is tracking. And so maintaining this equilibrium, as, as, you, as, you, as you said, this, this no landing scenario would essentially mean continued pressure on the Fed to do something. This would imply more kind of shilly-shallying and balancing and this endless querying and you and I doing endless podcasts about what the Fed will do. Mm. And in the end, this has to resolve itself into one or the other of the other scenarios, namely a hard landing or a soft landing. Right? It's not until inflation comes down that we can say that we're back to some kind of equilibrium, not because the economy and society couldn't potentially tolerate 5 6% inflation of a societies which have lived with that, but because we've got a powerful agent, an actor in the system, the Fed, that is mandated, effectively, legally mandated, to get the inflation rate down to something closer to 2%. And whilst everyone in the system knows that there's that big whale in the financial system that is motivated that way, then of course, no one can really feel confident that the prevailing higher level of inflation and interest rates and so on would actually be a stable equilibrium. And so that creates a kind of antsiness. So in the end, mm. we have to we have to land somehow. And what that means is we have to have inflation down. I mean, couldn't the Fed just be patient? I mean, if the if the trend oh, yeah. is working yeah. in, in this direction, uh, couldn't they just let it play out uh, rather than kind that of... Is yeah, that is going to be the trillion dollar question going forward from here is how patient will they be? Because going from you know, close to 10% to 6% and from 6% to 3.5% is the sort of trend the markets expect. The rubber will hit the road when the question is, what will the Fed do if inflation sticks at three? And, you know, they really should be squeezing, squeezing, squeezing until we get to two. And another option would be revise the mandate. And I've, you know, long been a supporter of, you know, the position argued by people like uh, Blanchard and uh, Olivier Blanchard, that is the French economist, formerly chief economist at the IMF, who, who've said, you know, we really ought to revise the target for the Fed to three or four percent, which once upon a time was a sort of inflationary position. And now it's a let's avoid the stress of trying to get from three or four percent to two, which is where we might be. You know, if you come back to this issue 12 months or 18 months from now, that might be the topic. Gotcha. So, yeah, moving the goalposts is, is an option as well. Might be an option, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, it also struck me that we talk about all these indicators in the aggregate. And I guess I was wondering, when you start looking at it in more detail, what kind of stories gets told? I mean, are there sectors of the U.S. economy that aren't really threatening any kind of recession at all, that, that seem to be actually be doing very well? And I guess on the flip side, are there parts of the economy that are really doing really badly already? Yeah, this is a really interesting perspective, and it's really been forced to the centre of attention by the inflationary experience this time, because it's still the case that, to a considerable extent, the inflation since COVID has been a sectoral story all along. It's been about particular bottleneck sectors, the famous supply chain issues, you know, that notorious few months where the American market for secondhand cars was driving inflation. Like, So it's been a sectoral story. And so the slowdown is also a sexual story, and it's very patchy. And that's part of the reason why the Fed's choice is so complicated. It's not just the averages are failing to move, but the averages are made out of components which aren't moving in line with each other. And um, so on the one hand, you've got bits of the energy sector which are flat out booming. Like there is still a boom dynamic running through the fossil fuel sector from the you know, surprise rebound in, in oil and gas prices last year. You know, huge surge in demand for labour in the in the in Texas. Um, you know, in the shale in the shale oil and gas fields, but also under the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act in the renewable sector. Right, this the big package that the Biden administration and Congress passed last year with 
hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidy now pouring into the American renewable energy sector. There's there's a vast demand there, in, you know, battery factories being built all over the place. So there's real growth there. And that's in part a construction sector story. And so this is where the story gets really complicated because it's not just between sectors, but it's even within sectors. The difference, say, between industrial construction, people building plant and people building houses, because as the mortgage rate has shot up in the US, the housing construction is tumbling right now. And there's a bigger and bigger gap, for instance, between permitted construction, for especially for multifamily units and actual construction taking place. Um, which tells you, in this word, that the developers are, are holding back from actually building the housing units because they don't think the demand's going to be there. So even within the construction sector, you can, you know, you can substantially improve your position by moving from building houses to building factories, especially building battery factories. And then a lot of people would have seen the story about the big tech layoffs, the job layoffs, which are a huge news item. Maybe one we could come back to. Uh, according to Crunchbase, one of the big tech job market platforms, I think ninety three thousand plus people have already lost their jobs in very high profile companies and that you know that that number appears to be ticking up by the day almost these are overwhelmingly the biggest firms in tech the question there is can one really say they're doing badly i mean these firms are they really being squeezed certainly not like you know um people in construction in housing are being squeezed but on the other hand they probably overhired during the the covid um switchback and the financial environment is much tucker, tougher and their their stock market valuations are way down and so they're adjusting and tightening their belts so it really is a very mixed story if we have a soft landing are we just returning to the economic situation we had before or is there going to be some some residue are we sort of in a new economic era as a result of this or as a product of all this inflation i mean this has been the puzzle about summers's position throughout i mean he's a you know extraordinarily smart guy but i mean it seemed as almost as though he suddenly saw the american economy as this like very dynamic you know cultish hmm. bouncy thing that needed to be reined in really hard because otherwise inflation was going to run away from us and people were going but but you know but larry a couple of years ago weren't you telling us that this you know, this dog don't hunt like this is thing is doesn't this doesn't go anymore. And so, you know, we keep juicing it with lower and lower interest rates, but it just won't go because the investment demand isn't mm. there. And so which one of these two images of the economy should we actually go with? And and the evidence seems to be and it's not necessarily a good news story. It just means that the inflation threat is less real than we many people suggested that we might actually be sort of drifting back to a lower growth, lower interest rates kind of a world. But you know, for for Europe, I find that entirely plausible. I just don't see a sudden surge forward in the underlying growth rate of the European economy, not even with all of the, you know, the real the spending on the energy transition for the United States. It's just a little less predictable. But even, even so, you know, there aren't that many people whose long run real expectation of growth in the US is, you know, much north of 2%, maybe 2.5% absolute maximum and that isn't an economy which generates, you know, very high interest rates over the long run. Got it. Yeah, I guess we'll soon know whether it was the low growth that was the aberration or the inflation itself that was the aberration. But uh, I guess, yeah, we, we don't yet know what Powell will do. But either way, it does seem clear that his actions in the months ahead will have an effect on U.S. politics, whether he, you know, kind of gooses the economy by lowering interest rates or keeping them low or conversely tries to kind of strangle inflation and causes a, a recession by raising interest rates even more. 
all that could have an effect on the 2024 presidential election specifically. So what does history tell us about how the world of politics might be applying pressure on Powell right now? I mean, this is a really interesting question because it takes us back to the sort of storied history of Fed White House relations back to the 1970s. And the sort of really locus classicus for this is the the struggle between Nixon and Burns, which was fought out with, you know, really tough politics on uh, predictably on Nixon's side. And there's this famous incident in 1970 where the, you know, the White House manifestly exercised massive pressure on the Fed to align itself with the administration's policy. And those conflicts continued through the late 70s into the early 80s relations between Paul Volcker, who we now think of as a profoundly conservative central banker, the man who hiked interest rates and stopped inflation in 1979. He was appointed by Carter, but you might think that that kind of anti-inflationary agenda would work well with the politics of the, the GOP and the Reagan presidency, but of course, none of it. Like There was, in fact, deep tension between Volcker and, and Reagan, and though Volcker is now a legend, he was you know not a reappointed for a second term, and they picked Greenspan instead, who was much more a man of the markets, a so-called market monetarist who reduced the money supply and credit whenever the markets appeared to need it. He got lucky with inflation, I think most people think, and it was really the labor market that did your job for him. And that, I think, is really the world that we're in now, and we continue to be in, and Powell is in. I don't think really that the trade-offs are tough in this respect. I don't think we're in the 70s because inflation is coming down. Furthermore, there is um, overwhelming consensus within the political system that it must come down. And the price that appears that the US will likely have to pay for bringing it down doesn't seem that large. In other words, I think everyone's acting, if not, you know, no one's actually going to say out loud, we're assuming a soft landing. But de facto, that's kind of the built-in expectation. Even a hard landing is not a 1970s, 1980s style hard landing. It's not a Volcker shock where you basically decimate the manufacturing sector in the US. There's not enough left of it anyway. It's not that sensitive to interest rates anymore in the late 70s, early 80s. It was in real, real trouble. No one expects that. The labor market is too strong and the inflation rate appears to be now beginning to move in the right direction. And the politics are such that confronting the Fed would probably be bad for anyone who did it. I don't think mm. that's particularly attractive. That won't necessarily stop some, shall we say, of the crazier elements in the GOP who, you know, in the 2010s, Ben Bernanke found himself defending fiat money against gold bugs. So, you know, mm-hmm. this could go this could go in a number of different directions. But I think Powell's in, in a pretty safe spot, to be honest. Okay, well, obviously, we will be keeping our eyes on this in the months ahead. Stick around for further discussions of inflation and uh, the Fed. But first, we're going to take a break and come back and talk about therapy. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And 
I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash publicsectorfuture to find all the episodes, or... Just search for Public Sector Future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is $147.70. That is the average amount spent each month by Americans on therapy or counseling. If that takes the form of couples therapy, it could run... A good deal more than that. Average prices for an hour session of couples therapy can then run, depending on where you live, anywhere from $120 to $400. We're now at the fourth entry of our series on the economics of love. We've covered dating, chocolate, and marriage. We'll finish next week with, well, with the economics of divorce. But uh, yeah, this week... We'll do the thing that I guess precedes divorce in some cases, therapy, and the economics surrounding that. So Adam, I guess just to start, is there data on the extent to which money is at the center of romantic strife in general? I mean, do macroeconomic conditions in that sense legibly affect marital stability? There's, it's a really interesting question because it operates at two different levels. Mm. There is, there's, there's very good evidence that economic, financial, social stress at the, the level of the individual couple is profoundly destabilizing to couples, right? So unsurprisingly, you know, if, if terrible things happen, it stresses couples in, in significant ways. But if you look at the 
macroeconomic picture, the overall picture, you see the reverse effect. So as unemployment rates go up, um, divorce rates go down. And so why might this be? And, and the answer offered by the substantial body of literature that's worked on this is that as the general economic situation becomes more precarious, the risks of divorce rise. And so people are less willing to take the plunge of breaking up a relationship because labor market outcomes are less good and divorce is extremely expensive and very high risk from the point of view of the socio and economic well-being of a, of a family unit, especially for women. So as women's unemployment rates go up, divorce rates fall precipitously. And in the many divorces, one of the key issues, of course, is the family home. And so, again, divorce rates are highly sensitive to economic conditions because when housing markets turn down, it becomes very unattractive to put your house on the market, which is one of the quite common effects of, of a divorce. And so people pull back from the edge. So in a sense, what this would predict is economic crisis creating lots of emotional stress and unhappiness, but it doesn't vent itself in the form of divorce. Hmm. And we can test this in a variety of different ways. So for instance, after foreclosure, when people lose their homes, divorce rates surge for two reasons, right? The stress is extreme. And on the other hand, you've lost the asset, which would have been one of the reasons that you would stay together. On the other hand, when unemployment rates fall and labor market conditions improve, divorce rates go up. And one of the ways you can test this is to look at places in the US and other societies which have uh, experienced sudden surges in prosperity. And so there's a whole raft of studies on the fracking boom in Texas and divorce rates. So what you see is as the fracking boom takes off, um, divorce rates surge, marriage rates fall, but what doesn't fall is pregnancy rates. So people continue to have sex, but they don't get married because the economic circumstances offer people the chance, as it were, of economic independence in boom conditions like that. So it's a, it's a very interesting case of social psychological impacts being clearly negative on divorce rates because people are much more distressed and unhappy and therefore stress builds up. But on the other hand, the economic and social constraints on the marriage hold the marriages, hold more marriages in place during harder times. Goodness. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That, that would seem to suggest that social conservatives should want sort of difficult economic uh, circumstances in order to keep marriages together or oh my God. have people I mean, marry I to begin much, with. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we may not like social conservatives, but that's a little extreme. I would have no, thought. I don't. I think their, <laughs> their, position, their position tends to be, I think, that more marriages make for happier and more stable societies with better economic growth for, for everyone. So, okay. mean, But fairness. still, there are tensions. <laughs> I mean, in the coalition of, I don't know, I mean, the coalition yeah. of social conservatives and economic liberals, deregulators, maybe there were some tensions there. I don't know. But in any case, uh, no, I think, you know, the idea that a sort of go-go capitalism that's just, you know, chasing fast economic growth with loose monetary policy might go in hand, hand in hand with loose morals is, of course, mm. a well-worn trope. So if some of these economic stresses are channeled into therapy, is there a reason to think that access to couples therapy would improve overall economic outcomes, even say on the level of improved job performance, improved overall health of the people in the couple. And in that respect, is therapy 
cost effective in that sense? So I, I looked hard for answers to this question. And I looked in vain at the level of generality that you're asking, like, you know, mm. does couples therapy lead to higher GDP growth, like, or, you know, mm. job performance or whatever. I, I didn't find any substantial evidence on this. It'd be fascinating to hear whether some readers know of any. And um, there is a huge amount of work on the efficacy and indeed the cost effectiveness of couples therapy, because health systems have to decide on whether or not to authorize funding for it. And the overwhelming evidence of empirical studies, such as they are, is that it's a highly effective form of therapy. It is marginally cheaper than individual therapy, and it is cost effective in the strict sense that it reduces the uptake of other health services at such a considerable rate that it pays for itself, in a sense, right? So the cost-benefit analysis is, is strongly positive. I mean, I think it's in part not just in the matter of couples therapy being a like two for one kind of deal like you, you deal with two people rather than one but also um it's highly uh effective and widely used in relation to various types of substance abuse you know codependency issues and so on and that's one of the areas where you know you're desperate obviously from the point of view of a health system as a whole to generate positive outcomes because substance abuse is so Ruinous. I mean, not just for the individual lives, but for uh, the, the entire family associated with the person suffering from the condition and uh, for the medical and social services that have to help these people and, and see them through their, their dependency. So that's where there's been a lot of studies. And, and I mean, the, the, the advantage is, it, you know, it's not a magic bullet, I think, but the evidence that I was able to find suggests that on net, it appears to be a cost effective me mechanism also in comparison with other forms of treatment. Hmm. So overall, how much exactly do Americans spend on therapy? And to what extent is psychological therapy of this kind absorbed into the US system of health insurance? I mean, like, what exactly decides whether therapy is a matter of health and medicine versus kind of more amorphous kinds of self-improvement? Well, the spending levels are very substantial. There was a recent White House report. I mean, the Biden administration has taken a notably enlightened position on this, and very much to their credit that they have, that overall American spending on mental health and substance abuse treatment is in the order of $280 billion a year and rising and rising rapidly. And of that, 85% is mental health related rather than substance abuse. And if you look at uh, the sources of funding for this, about 10% of that is out of pocket, 20% is private insurance. Medicaid picks up about a quarter of it. So that's the American health insurance, public health insurance that covers people on low incomes. Uh, Medicare, which is for the elderly, state and local, each pick up another 15%. So the costs are quite widely dispersed and the typical user of mental health services is not, you know, your Woody Allen style, somebody with a psychoanalysis habit. It's somebody who's either being covered by insurance or, or on Medicaid or Medicare. And I think that's, that's kind of important to emphasize, like in a kind of urban environment. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a somebody who's in, I've been, I've been in therapy for years and I regard it as something that I need to, to cope with life. I'm, I am not a typical user of, um, therapeutic services. I mean, the vast majority of people are in extremely dire condition. They desperately need help for a variety of different problems, whether it's anxiety or depression or schizophrenia. And we're talking a huge population, right? We're talking 19% of American adults received some kind of mental health treatment in 2019. 
a night, and that's mm. before the mm. the pandemic. Of those, fifteen point eight percent received prescription medication, so they were basically taking pills, probably largely for depression, and then about nine to ten percent received counselling or therapy, and most of that will be relatively short term treatment, not the kind of long term analysis that that I'm able to to pay for and that benefits me so significantly. And overall in the US, there is, as in most advanced societies, a very considerable deficit in the provision of uh, mental health services. Wherever funding was made publicly available, there's been a bunch of randomized tests of this. Wherever the costs were lowered, there was a significant uptick in provision. And there is also a shortage of mental health providers uh, in the American system. So that 280 billion figure, I think we should think of as primarily, you know, very much health in the most hardcore sense of the word. In other words, people who seriously need help with functioning. And a large part of that is going on medication rather than full on therapy. And the figure in a better world would be much higher than, than it currently is, because there's many people out there who could deal with and could do with and benefit from more sophisticated forms of treatment than just being given a pill. Got it. Yeah, you're right to say. I do think that sort of Woody Allen image has sort of stuck um, in, in a way that doesn't correspond to the, to yeah, the I mean, facts. 19% of the population you're talking about, this is a very quotidian, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of people need this kind mm. of help. And it's, and it's generally, you know, in many cases, extremely urgent and linked, of course, in multivariate ways to a whole variety of other issues around i don't know you know substance abuse and everything else so so yeah i mean it's a big big deal to what extent could the practice of therapy be thought of as economically or politically regressive i guess by that i mean it seems like inherently in the concept of therapy there's a focus on self-improvement on yeah this sort of inward directed attention and and sort of self-discipline and you know that contrasts say with an analysis of systemic social ills and is there a kind of displacement of of attention in that way from the kind of systemic social political economic to the individual and personal and psychological I think it's undeniable that if you are willing to credit the idea that people's psychological difficulties and mental illness is not simply rooted in their internal lives, their particular conditions, their genetics even, but has a social component, then to treat those conditions as individual matters rather than to address the social conditions which help to produce them is by itself at some level yes avoiding a confrontation with those social conditions and to that extent you could say that it is indeed well if not i mean politically regressive is a, is a strong word but certainly maintains a status quo right and quite a lot of psychological mm. analysis actually mm. employs a kind of equilibrium and integration concepts which are themselves as their analogues in economic reasoning are quite conservative in their implications. The defense of that position would, of course, be that that kind of treatment is essential if people are going to be able to cope. The situation may not be ultimately resolvable at the individual level and the mental health problems suffered by some of the most disadvantaged people in society, the high incidence of mental illness amongst black men, for instance. 
is clearly not simply a matter of their individual psychology, but of the racism they encounter in the society around them. But given the racism of that society, what are you going to do, right? So, of course, you could direct a revolutionary politics against that society. And there have been moments, in fact, in my hometown in Germany, in Heidelberg, in the early 70s, there was a thing called the Socialist Patients Collective, which was one of several efforts in the 60s and 70s to turn psychiatric and mental health treatment to revolutionary purposes. In other words, to to say that the mentally ill, to use that category, are almost by definition a dispossessed, exploited, disadvantaged, and therefore also potentially revolutionary group, if not even a class. And so the proper function of therapy ought to be to mobilize them in collective action against the system that makes them ill in part by rolling with their illness rather than trying to remediate it. It's not a politics that went anywhere. It ended in an armed standoff and the shutting down of the clinic, and it didn't, it didn't succeed as a politics. So if we are to live in a society which to a considerable extent does make, and it's undeniable, I think, many people ill, we perhaps also need a kind of politics of adaptation um, uh, and a sort of politics of self-defense. And I think... That's a sort of minimal position that that is is highly defensible, right? That that uh, if we recognise that, and part of the process in therapy can, after all, be recognising the circumstances that are contributing to your to your distress. That in itself can help because it can allow you to distinguish between the things which are truly inside you and the things which aren't, and that distinct, you know, drawing that boundary more consistently and in a more healthy way is, is an essential part of many therapeutic practices. And so I think that's really the defense, um, that barring the possibility of revolutionary transformation, therapy has got to be part of making life bearable mm. for many people. That should not, however, stand in the way clearly of progressive, determined efforts to transform that world, which, which also acknowledge, and I think it's important to recognize and I'm personally very open about my own therapy because it's important to recognize how stigmatized this is and stigmatizing it of course um, compounds as it were the constraints which which I think make life so very difficult for many people suffering from severe mental illness yeah certainly don't mean to add any stigma to this topic but I did find this discussion fascinating and I think I agree I think it's something that people don't talk enough about but in any case, it's literally to... the next thing I'm going to do right now after we sign off from this recording, because <laughs> I'm literally going to go and talk to my therapist. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, in can... in, uh, in uh, 120 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I'm guessing you won't be relaying any of these questions. Uh, you'll have other things to talk about. But in any case, we'll end our conversation here and we'll finish our series on love. This sort of took a... I think an interesting detour, but a detour nonetheless into the depths of therapy. But okay, we'll leave it here for now and be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Two's but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Two's listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe 
and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. 
So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.